Live from Beit Shemesh and broadcasted around the world, you are listening to the From Entrepreneur Podcast with your host, Naham Klegman. Interviews and advice from Jewish entrepreneurs from around the world. Listen, learn, be Masliach. Welcome to episode 28 of the From Entrepreneur. And today we have Shimon Pepper from Shimon Pepper and Associates. Shimon has dozens of years of experience in the nonprofit and fundraising field. Uh, I came through Shimon through my work with Nextdoor, which is a, a project I'm involved in with, with Hanan Kaufman from episode 25, uh, where we are looking to help lead the next generation and train the next generation of uh, Jewish entrepreneurs, Jewish social entrepreneurs, I should say. And so uh, I think that this conversation is going to be very enlightening. We're going to learn a lot. And uh, this is somebody that's been out in the field, especially in the fundraising field. If you ever wondered how these organizations are able to raise tens of millions of dollars, not hundreds of millions of dollars, you're going to find those answers out in today's episode. So, uh, Shimon, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Nachum. Thank you for having me. And uh, I appreciate the time you give me to uh, share this with your audience. Well, thank you. Uh, I mean, it's really, I, I've done, uh, I, I did a little fundraising myself, you know, <laughs> not compared to, to the levels you've worked at, but it is not uh, an easy industry to be into. Uh, that is true. Uh, in many ways, it's become more complex and more difficult. And I'm sure during the course of our conversation, we can speak about that to some degree. I've actually been uh, involved in the not-for-profit world since 1975. Oh, I, wow. uh, I began in the federation system and uh, worked in the Jewish federation system for about 20 years. And over the last 20 years, I have been a uh, consultant working with uh, a variety of organizations uh, under the rubric of Shimonese Pepper and Associates. Amazing. 40 years in the nonprofit world. So how did you get into the... Uh... Actually, before we dig in a little bit, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself in terms of where you grew up, you know, where, uh, what schools you went to, et cetera? Sure. I was uh, born and raised in a uh, industrial town 50 miles southeast of Boston called Fall River, Massachusetts. It's just east of Providence between uh, Cape Cod and uh, Newport. I was born mm-hmm. in a traditional Jewish family, the oldest of uh, five brothers and sisters. Uh, my parents uh, had a uh, small uh, retail business. They're in the bakery business. And uh, we lived in Fall River and grew up in Fall River. I went to the public school system in Fall River. And um, fortunately, some years into our education, we discovered the Providence Hebrew Day School, became a a day school student, and uh, later attended Brown University, University of Massachusetts, Hebrew University in Israel, and also studied at uh, a yeshiva, which was then called Shema Yisrael, later it became Or Sameach and uh, Eshet Torah, and uh, that is my uh, my background. Amazing. So you were one of the, I guess you were in Shmaya So when they first opened up? Uh, shortly thereafter. Wow, amazing, amazing. And now you live in Muncie. That's correct. We've been in Muncie since 1983, got married in the mid-70s. We lived in Flatbush for a year. I worked for the Federation in Baltimore for five years, for four years in Houston, and then we settled in Muncie, and we've lived here since 1983. Wow. So, so what attracted you uh, and how did you get started in the nonprofit world? Is that something that you just uh, that something you're always interested in or is it did it like find you somehow? I, um, I think I would answer it by saying that it was for me a fusion of a uh, guy who grew up as a 1960s activist 
and someone who uh, created a uh, a greater sense of uh, Jewish responsibility after yeshiva and uh, the fusion of the 60 activism and the Jewish commitment led me to the Jewish community pretty much by fate. We moved to New York and I was uh, seeking a position and someone invited us for a Shabbos meal. Uh, they mentioned uh, something related to the not-for-profit Jewish world. I uh, got first a job at Niana settling Russian uh, immigrants who were coming to the United States at the time, and thereafter moved to Baltimore and participated in a program that was a fast track in the uh, in the Jewish communal world. And it really happened over Shabbos meal when someone heard of the uh, of the interest that I had and suggested exactly where I should go and how I should proceed. And uh, I uh, actually did that. I might mention that uh, the people that we visited at the time, uh, name was Zoroff. They have a son who's famous as a as a person who uh, is involved in Holocaust studies. Mm-hmm. So over a Shabbos meal, you, you, they, uh, they realize that, hey, you're an activist. You wanted to get involved in the Jewish world. And they happen to know of a position available. Position available, education. And um, I was fast-tracked through a program in Baltimore called the Baltimore Institute of Jewish Communal Service. And uh, came out of that program, worked for the Baltimore Federation, later the Houston Federation, and uh, then National UJA. So what type of work were you doing for the Federation work? Well, again, I think that uh, things are uh, very much beshared. I uh, began, and as uh, most Jewish activists uh, at that time uh, assumed that what I was going to become was a social planner. Uh, I remember the first project I worked on had something to do with the Jewish Big Brother League. I created a, uh, a study for them. But shortly thereafter, there was a position open in the Federation field in fundraising. I took that position. I connected to it. I enjoyed it very much. And uh, thank God, Baruch Hashem, I was able to uh, to have many, many successful years in the Federation system through uh, just a... Uh, just uh, opportunities that uh, that presented themselves to me, and and how so you would basically how did the fundraising work in those early years? Uh, they that's a very aids? that's a very good question because fundraising in the federation system, in particular in the earliest earliest years, was very much fundraising management. I remember that uh, the first day or two that I had my that I began my position, it was in the summertime, uh, I think nineteen seventy seven, and in Baltimore and. I had a whole bunch of un uh, of what we called uh, 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 prospects uh, that had not yet made their gifts. And I said to my supervisor, he said, what are you doing today? And I said, well, I'm going to follow up and call these uh, people to try to get donations from them. And he said, don't do that. He said, because if you do that, they will not take any responsibility anymore the lay leadership who had responsibility to, to close these cards, rather call up, have a meeting with your chairman and make sure he makes the calls. That was the beginning and that's really how it started. But shortly thereafter, I uh, went on my first mission with uh, young leadership people. One, one of my first jobs was a director of leadership development in the Baltimore Federation. And there I began to uh, fundraise directly and I honed in on that skill. And as the years progressed, I became more and more proficient, more and more comfortable uh, more and more involved and more and more successful in the area of direct fundraising. Generally, fundraising for me has meant direct fundraising, two-on-one, meaning two, uh, pro- two solicitors soliciting one unit or one prospect. 
And back then, you would go to these people's offices, their homes, meet in a restaurant. How, yeah, was the all, best? all of the, all of the above. Uh, again, I think that the, many of the uh, solicitations in the early days were situational. They took place in Israel. They took place at the back of the bus. They took place in hotels. They took place uh, when we had drinks a few days before the conclusion of the of a mission that we may have been on. They were really the bulk of the solicitations. Later, it was restaurants. It was breakfasts. It was. Um, appointment making and uh, it evolved i think into uh, hundreds and hundreds of uh, very exciting solicitations each uh, which i always call a human laboratory never knowing exactly what you're walking into and uh, having what what we call a jewish conversation that uh, results most of the time in a commitment and a deeper appreciation of the activities and organizations that we are fundraising for. And uh, the uh, results have been over the years, uh, and many times astounding. I don't say this in any uh, boastful way, but I believe that uh, fundraising is very much uh, what we would call siyata dishmaya. It has to do really with the way it's going to end with the Almighty, with the Kodesh Baruch Hu leading us in some direction. And um, I think for that reason, there have been many, many, many successes that I would not have otherwise expected. Amazing. And and back then, so again, the, the Federation would, re, would re, uh, give you the warm leads or oh, more, you had to go out and more find than the leads, leads More than leads. The Federation basically had their annual donors uh, or uh, activists. There were very few cold calls and uh, we worked through a structure. I began with a, a trade division, the engineering division, moved up to levels of giving, the $1,000 division, the $5,000 division, the Young Leadership division. And it was, um, I guess I would call it pretty um, peaceful fundraising. And those days it was, you gave $1,000 last year, can I ask you to do $1,500 this year? I might mention that on the, on the first mission, my first really major solicitation, I uh, solicited someone that I had had a couple of years of experience with in Baltimore, and the individual uh, I had solicited the night before for, let's say, $5,000 person had mm-hmm. been maybe an $1,800 giver before that. And as we were moving into a caucus, which is where the culmination of a week of uh, fundraising activity took place and people stood up and announced their gifts and also shared their personal uh, stories, responsibilities, their personal journeys. So I went over to this particular person and I said, you know, $5,000 is a wonderful gift and I'm really excited that you've gone to that level. Uh, Would you consider making a donation of uh, $10,000 during the caucus? And he said, I'll consider that. And the caucus went on and he was pretty much of a neophyte in fundraising. And when he got up to announce his gift, he didn't give five and he didn't give 10, but he gave uh, either 18 or 25. I don't remember exactly what. And at those days, uh, men and women had separate caucuses. So he was there with his wife and his wife came out and she said to him, Richard, how much uh, more did you give than you said you were going to give? He said, how did you know? And I said, and he said, I said to, I said to his wife, I said, you knew he was going to give more and I knew he was going to give more, but he didn't know it until he walked into the meeting and the energy that took place in that meeting encouraged him and catapult him to a new level. So that's the kind of fundraising that we did very often during the earliest years of fundraising. I was in the Federation system for about 20 years. The last six years of those uh, were really blessed years. I was the national director of a campaign called Operation Exodus. It was a campaign to 
rescue and resettle Russian Jews from the former Soviet Union, bringing most of them to Israel, but some who ended up in the United States or in Germany or wherever they wherever they uh, chose to go. And uh, we raised uh, during that period of time uh, $910 million, wow. including one solicitation, the largest solicitation that I have ever done, uh, which was a $15 million solicitation. Wow. Do you know? Do you remember who that was with? I, I do. I'd rather not say who it was with, but I am happy to tell the story because it's a very uh, fascinating story. I teach a lot of fundraising and I take people through the steps of fundraising, set an appointment, visit people face to face, two on one solicitation, a whole series of principles that we go through. And then I say to them, but you never know. Let's go back to this concept of siyat dishmaya. That is, whatever's going to happen is going to be pushed by the Almighty, no matter how prepared you are or what direction you think it's going to take. So this $15 million solicitation happened in all the wrong ways. I was <laughs> the junior solicitor. There were two of us who flew from New York to a Midwestern state, and we solicited a major donor for what was an easy ask. It was a $3 million over three-year commitment that a very senior person was going to make in response to the fact that we had this opportunity of the doors being open to the Jewish people uh, in Russia for the first time in 70 years. And it was an easy $3 million ask. That wasn't the solicitation. My job was to then say, you know, we can't reach Mr. So-and-so. Would you be, are you prepared to make a phone call and help us close that gift? That was my job. So I mm -hmm. said that to this $3 million donor, payable over three years. And he said, okay, and he made the phone call. Now, in those days, phones were not so sophisticated. He was on the phone that I can only imagine the, uh, how the conversation went based on what we heard. So he called up this person in the, in the West Coast. Our $3 million guy was about 75 years old, and the prospect in the West was about 10 years older. That's important to the wow. story. So he calls up, and he says something like, I'm here with these guys and they've and they've asked me to call you as opposed to I just made a commitment and <laughs> right <laughs> and uh, I'm excited about this and I want and I want you to make a donation. So the conversation went something like this. They want me to they want me to ask you for a gift. Now <laughs> and he's and person doesn't hang up and they're having a nice conversation. They know each other and he says and to tell you the truth I myself just made a gift of $3 million. So the, uh, the person on the other end who doesn't hear that well apparently says, okay, I'll give $5 million. Wow. Then he says, I'm giving my $3 million over three years. He said, okay, if you want $5 million for three years, I'll give you $15 million. And that was the conversation. <laughs> Are you kidding me? That is the conversation. So he gets up for the phone, says, "Hey guys, we just got five million for three years." Yeah, you just got fifteen million dollars, and sure enough, we got uh, three checks, five million dollars each check. Now I told this story many, many times, and wow. it was a Tuesday, and I flew back from the Midwest, and I was uh, the happiest young fundraiser <laughs> in America. I thought I was just so cool and so great, and uh, it was a it, you know, from my humble beginnings in Florida, Massachusetts, suddenly I just closed a $15 million gift. It seemed like totally, totally out of this world, which in fact it was. And then, right. uh, and I told the story and I said, and I said to people, 
I said, and I was so excited on Tuesday until on Shabbos, on Saturday, I opened the New York Times, and on the front right-hand side in the middle, there was an article about this $15 million donor who had contributed five zero. $50 million to the United Negro College Fund. Oh, and my I said, gosh. okay, so I'm not such a big shot. Here they, <laughs> he gave $50 million to the United Negro College Fund, and we had this unbelievable this is a Jewish guy. A Jewish guy. We had this unbelievable opportunity, <laughs> and here it is. So I tell this story over and over again, and about, about oh, I don't know, a decade ago, about 10 years ago, somebody comes over to me after the um, – after the uh, lecture that I gave and told this story, and he said, did you get paid? And I said, of course we got paid. We got $5 million each year for three years. He said, then you should feel very good because that $50 million was never paid for. Wow. So that's uh, Now, I don't know if that's true or not true, but uh, <laughs> I'm now once again the happiest fundraiser in America. <laughs> That's a great story. Surprisingly, though, you, 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 I mean, you didn't – I would have thought that after you got that phone call, you would have flown to the West Coast just to meet the guy. I mean, he didn't need to meet you. He didn't need anything. He just – just based on his friend's recommendation? Yeah, he was not uh, – as I said, he was an elderly man at that time. He, had, he was giving – he was a uh, recalcitrant in many ways. He was not interested in meeting us. In fact, uh, I, I hadn't actually thought about this for some time, but I was known as the guy who would close this gift. So the next year or so, maybe six months later, I went to Israel. I had a meeting with uh, I don't, the Minister of Education in Israel or something. We created a program for this particular donor and I never was able, it was a, a large program, even larger than $15 million. And I was never able to even present that either to him or to any of his professionals who worked for him. It was a one-time donation. Uh, he did not have uh, an interest in pursuing this. We did not create a relationship. Remember, I was the junior guy in this relationship and I never actually met him. I only met the guy who made the phone call to encourage him to make the gift. Wow, what a great! I mean, yeah, you just see the Siata de Shmaya in that. That's unbelievable. One hundred percent. So, so I always say to people, you know, you have the greatest plans, you've done the greatest training, uh, you're a great solicitor, uh, and you may close a gift in a way that uh, you had ne you never anticipated or expected. But you have to be out there uh, attempting and trying and encourage yourself to go out and to try to raise money. Beautiful, beautiful. Okay, so let me ask you a, a few questions just based on on fundraising and the industry. Sure. But uh, first of all, who are some of the clients that you work with today? So, I mean, you worked for Federation for 20 years, and then you opened up your own uh, management company. Yeah, ostensibly what happened was uh, following Operation Exodus, which was a wonderful campaign that went from 1990 to 1995. I uh, felt that the... Uh, responsibilities and roles that I had at National UJA, at that time I was an associate vice president of UJA, would never really measure up to the tremendous opportunities that I had in fundraising and in community development and decided that I would uh, branch out, reach out and do more boutique fundraising. And I began uh, with a number of small clients. And over the years, uh, Baruch Hashem, thank God, I have uh, by and large maintained one anchor client at a time 
Sometimes it's for years, sometimes it's for three years, sometimes it's for four years, and then uh, worked with uh, anywhere from two to four additional clients throughout the course of a year. If my client system became too large, I brought in some associates. I have a few people who work with me on particular and specific projects, but by and large, my connection is to a client. I help them raise money. I help them problem solve. I've worked with banks in getting uh, mortgages. I've worked with banks in getting uh, reductions and changes in in terms and then help them raise funds. I've taught staff. I've um, mastered a few uh, uh, new skills, including uh, fundraising on the internet. And uh, by and large, I focus my day on uh, my uh, core client, Today, my anchor client is uh, an organization called Leva Lave. It is a it sponsors and supports an orphanage in Netanya, Israel, under the auspices of the Klosenberger Rebbe, who started this in 1961. And the rest of my day is spent uh, in a variety of other exciting ways. I'm working today with the uh, with the Jewish uh, Children's Museum in uh, Crown Heights. I'm working mm-hmm. on, uh, I'm working with a couple outreach programs, one in Philadelphia, one in Montreal, and uh, I'm about to, uh, I'm about to begin, actually I've just begun a project of uh, purchasing a uh, facility for a, a startup yeshiva in Teaneck, New Jersey. Beautiful. Wow. Amazing to be involved in so many great projects and helping the claw in so many different ways. You know, even though uh, you get paid for it, it's still uh, to be involved in such incredible projects. The schusim uh, are probably endless with what you're doing. Thank you very much. I uh, very much enjoy what I do. I'm almost at the age of retirement, but uh, there is no uh, reason for me to retire. I'm very excited about uh, getting up and working each and every day. And uh, when an opportunity comes to me and I know I can be helpful, I participate. Generally, it's a paid professional professional position, but sometimes I uh, volunteer my time, my energy with all the years experience that I have. I believe that it, uh, it's important that I give back. There's now a project that I'm working on, which I'm very excited about, and I'm, I'm doing it pro bono. It's, it's called the MANA Project. Someone here in the States, someone from Kew Garden Hills, originally from Los Angeles, started a project where he uh, has negotiated with Angel's Bakery in Israel and is getting loaves of bread for a dollar a loaf. Uh, I think it's about a third of the price uh, on the open market. And what he is doing, what he did last year, is he was able to distribute to the poor one million loaves of bread. Now he hopes to get up to two to two and a half million uh, with various drop-off points in Israel. And I'm working pro bono at helping him find an executive director and working on his board to make this happen. Beautiful. Yeah, literally putting bread into the hands of uh, people that just don't have it. That's, that's amazing. Literally. Oh, great project. Great project. Now, I saw also you you worked for the Kobe Mandel Foundation. Yes, I was a founding uh, consultant and fundraiser for the Kobe Mandel Foundation in um, October and November of 2001, about five months after Kobe was murdered, along with his friend in the uh, about 100 uh, yards behind his house in Tekoa, Israel. And I still get chills when I... In a cave. I had a meeting with someone who um, approached me to uh, represent a particular organization. I was not interested in doing it. And uh, at the end of the meeting, he said to me, as long as you don't want to work for me, I want to recommend uh, and become a shotgun between you and Seth Mandel. And um, he described the situation. I knew about it uh, a bit. And I told him that uh, I would, uh, that even before I met Seth and even before I 
created any terms, I uh, would uh, work with uh, with the Mandels at setting up this foundation. So I, I either called Seth or sat with him several weeks later, and I asked two questions. I said, Seth, do you have any prospects? He said, no. I said, Seth, <laughs> do you have any money? He said, no. I said, okay, <laughs> I'll take the job. And, uh, and for four or five years, until they hired an executive director, and as a matter of fact, I worked with that exec- executive director, Todd Sukal, who um, had started out as a lay leader. And uh, to this day, Todd, who's no longer working for the Kobe Mandel Foundation, uh, is, he and I are close friends and we've worked uh, closely together over the years on other projects as well. Uh, it was a tremendous, tremendous uh, for me to work with the Mandels at creating that foundation. Foundation started, uh, we went, I guess it was 2001, to the uh, General Assembly of the Federation in Washington, D.C. And I did something that a lot of people always wanted to do, but never really had the opportunity. I I actually raised money at this General Assembly from federations, and we walked out of the General Assembly with a commitment of about $750,000 from uh, wow. four or five or six federations that uh, got so excited about this. I won't say they, they didn't give us the $750,000 at the um at, at, at the meetings. But uh, ultimately, in the first year, we got up to $750,000 of commitments from federations and another few hundred thousand dollars. And then I remember saying to Seth uh, in May or June, we were ready to start a summer camp. I said, Seth, now that we have a um, reservoir of seven, eight hundred thousand dollars I said, what are we going to do with the money? I said, do you have any campers? And he said, oh, and it was June. And I he said, no, we don't have any campers yet. And I said, this is crazy. We have the money. We don't have a program. He said, don't worry. In Israel, you don't set summer camps up early. People will come. And sure enough, we ended up with 200, 250 kids at uh, Camp Kobe that summer. And it was a wonderful, wonderful experience traveling with Seth, traveling with Sherry Mandel and working with them at the in the creation of this uh, of this foundation. Beautiful, beautiful. Great story. All right, let's go. Let's get a little more deeper into the uh, into fundraising itself. And you've had a lot of experience. Uh, what would you say would be the th- the three secrets of fundraising? I'm going to answer that question in a kind of uh, strange way. I actually worked on a poem, picked up on a poem that I read in a in a in a fundraising book, and then added my own last five or six verses to it. And I think that'll answer your question in a in a kind of playful. Uh, way. And within the context of this poem, I think the answers will be there. So if you bear with me, I will read to you, perfecting the ask, the joy of asking. A fundraiser stood at the heavenly gate. His face was scarred and old. He stood before Hashem, waiting his fate for his final admission to the fold. What have you done in life? The Malach said, to be admitted here. I've been a fundraiser. That I have been, sir, for many and many a year. Immediately, the gate swung open wide. The Malach rang the bell. Come in and choose your reward, he said. You've had your share of hell. It's necessary to persist, especially in times of economic trouble. Raising funds right now may be tough, so your efforts, you must double. Training, it may help somewhat in sharpening your skills. But in the end, the recipe for success depends upon Hashem's will. So solicit face-to-face, make the ask, and be sameach, happy and very kind. And much success for your efforts you will surely find. Enthusiasm is contagious. 
It starts with your belief. You'll undermine the bottom line if you emphasize the grief. So present the case with honesty and integrity and do not ever fake. To force the prospect to make the gift is certainly a mistake. He shouldn't regret what he's done when his slumber he does awake. Believe in it, that is the cause, believe in you, and believe in the prospect too. He or she will respond in kind. I know, they always do. Oh yes, there are exceptions, but they are counted among the few whose DNA for giving stucca is missing from that Jew. So Davin, then prepare for the encounter, know as much as you possibly can. Then the potential giver will quickly become the fundraiser's biggest fan. Integrity and passion, I think, answers your question. That is, I think, the tools of success in this particular area. Not convincing someone to do something they don't want to do, but rather giving them the sense that what you're presenting to them is so important, and you're doing so in an honest way with great integrity. Beautiful. That First of all, that poem was, was excellent. I'm going to write it up. We're going to put it in the show notes. But uh, yeah, you gave us more than uh, three secrets, but that uh, that was fantastic. You're talking about preparation. You're talking about two-on-one solicitations. You're talking about giving people a sense of purpose, having them share with you a dream, a mission. I always say that I can't write music and I can't draw. So what I like to do with my words is to help a person create an image that becomes their painting. And that is what they are intending to support in their efforts. That's what we hope to achieve. I always say we walk into a solicitation and I have my agenda and he has or she has her agenda. And our objective, my objective is to make my agenda our agenda. And that's what fundraising in the classic sense and in the high standard sense is really all about. Beautiful, beautiful. So what would you say is the most challenging uh, aspects of fundraising and how do you overcome them personally? Okay, the um, clearly the most the most uh, difficult tasks or the most difficult conditions of fundraising, the most difficult area of fundraising is to, as Nike says, just go out and do it. There are many studies done of people who are in the fundraising area, and many observations I have, many anecdotes I could share, where the person responsible for fundraising, sometimes the executive director, sometimes even a telemarketer, will choose to do anything and everything except for the fundraising. What I do is I literally spend three and a half hours each and every morning fundraising, trying to make appointments, trying to respond to calls, setting up appointments. And if you don't set time to do that, you can find tremendous numbers of distractions that you feel are part of the fundraising landscape, but you never quite get the fundraising. So the issue is, uh, so the, the key first ingredient is you have to be in the game. You have to focus on it. You have to think about it. And one of the ways that I do that is the first call that I make in the morning is always an easy call. It's always a call that I know is going to advance what it is that I'm involved in, or at least I think it is. It will set the tone and the day 
to be a positive day. Uh, we fundraisers are deeply emotional and uh, we're excited about our successes and we're deeply uh, upset, sometimes depressed with those that are not yet successful. So I try to build on a positive, uh, on a positive platform day after day. It uh, generally happens and um, the uh, results turn out to be good. Now that's on sort of a conceptual or philosophical level. On a more practical level, I would say, that uh, the, the three most difficult challenges are getting the appointment, knowing what to ask for, and closing the gift. And uh, I tell you one anecdotal story about, get, about knowing how much to ask for, which I think speaks to different question, which are what are the secrets of fundraising? And um, I think that if you were to say, what are the three secrets of fundraising? I would say the three secrets of fundraising are listening, listening, and listening. <laughs> Having said that, I remember once fundraising in Toronto for an organization. I was the, quote, consultant. There was an executive director. The executive director got a meeting with a prominent rabbi in town who then gave us five or six people for us to visit while we were in Toronto. And mm -hmm. the first appointment, uh, and after having conversations with the, with the rabbi, uh, it seemed that uh, most of the solicitations would be in the $1,800 to $2,500 range, which was a perfectly uh, acceptable first uh, donation for people that we had yet to meet, uh, but who could help us in our fundraising efforts. And we went to visit this particular individual who had originally come from South Africa, lived in Toronto, and the uh, conversation went something like this. I know Rabbi so-and-so would not have sent you to visit with me for a donation of $1,800. Now, in <laughs> fact, that's what exactly what we were going to ask. And then he went on and then he went on to something else. And we had a conversation and uh, I looked at him and I said, uh, thank you very much. I remember his name. I won't mention it here. And I said, we'd like to ask you to consider a gift of $18,000. Now, he didn't give $18,000. He gave about $7,500, but he gave us the ammunition, the opportunity, the ability to ask him for a gift that we were not going to ask him for. And that is, by the way, uh, one of the reasons why the two-on-one solicitation is so valuable, there are a number of reasons, but in this case, my uh, colleague who represented the organization, knew the organization better than I, uh, spoke about the organization, but I was able to listen to the cues and to the, uh, and to the conversation that uh, this prospect uh, spoke about, and it was very easy then to make the ask and ultimately the closure. Excellent. That, that, that's great. Great, great advice. Uh, what would you say, how important is the follow-up? Like, you know, these guys you meet sometimes, you know, 50 people, 100 people, you know, over the course of your experience, you've probably met thousands of people. How important is the follow-up and, and uh, is that important? Well, follow-up is very important, but uh, recognize that uh, I'm a consultant come in to help do a campaign for six months, nine months or a year and uh, attempt to ensure that the individual who we solicited is returned to the organization. So that's really up to the organization. I do not carry uh, prospects from one organization to another. I find I it's not good business. I find it's not ethical. And I find, frankly, that doesn't really work. That once you've built a connection over a particular interest of that individual and have uh, helped to shape 
excitement from that individual for that organization, uh, it's both uh, unethical and non-productive to move that person to another organization. I would add that uh, I could have far more clients, more than I could handle, if I said to them, oh yeah, I will get you a gift from my friend A or my friend B. I make it very, very clear that we're working from their Rolodex, their connections, and sometimes we'll run into, in on their list, somebody that I know or somebody that I have really the book on, and we'll be able to help them. But by and large, these are not my contacts, and I don't move people from organization to organization. So in answer to your question directly, the organization has to maintain the relationship. I've helped to create the relationship, to, to advance the relationship, but not uh, year after year, I am not uh, necessarily connected uh, to that uh, particular donor. Interesting. So, but do you help? I mean, do you help advise the organizations on how to follow up, how often they should follow up? Yes. Why they need yes. to follow I, up? Yeah. Even after my contract is over, I, I have sort of a, a lifetime affinity uh, to the organization, and um, they might call me back uh, a year or two or three years later and say, "You remember so and so? That person is now at a different stage in life. What do you think we should do? Create an endowment?" Uh, Go visit them. Somebody just passed away. How do you uh, best uh, fundraise in a shiva house? The answer is you don't, <laughs> and um, and so forth. But uh, so I maintain a lot of relationships with uh, people. Uh, most of my new clients come from happy old clients who were happy with the work that I did, and then refer situations and uh, people uh, to me. And so I maintain that relationship. I have keep those relationships with the client system, but not necessarily with the donor. Excellent. Okay. So you, you told us a couple of great stories, of successful stories in, in fundraising. What was the worst fundraising experience that you had? Okay. I'm, I, I uh, thought about this and I'm going to kind of reshape the question a little bit by answering by telling you the following story or the following principle. I often tell uh, people in my seminars that the optimum length of a solicitation and the usual length of a solicitation goes for about an hour to an hour and 15 minutes. That gives an opportunity to go through the four stages of solicitation, the opening, the presentation of the case, the negotiation, and the closing. And the experience that I've had is that between an hour and an hour and 15 minutes is the length of a solicitation. And then I caution the people in my seminars that you don't measure the success of a solicitation by the length of that solicitation and proceed to say, let me tell you that my longest solicitation was three and a half hours Maybe it was the second longest solicitation. I could tell you about the longest in a minute. The longest solicitation was three and a half hours, and I received zero. One of the shortest solicitations was a 14-minute solicitation with somebody who really didn't want me to be there, and he gave $18,000 within 14 minutes. So so the length of the solicitation is not uh, necessarily connected to the success of the solicitation. Now, the longest solicitation I was involved in, and maybe it's a maybe it's a fundraising nightmare, maybe it's not, a very good result was I solicited someone from a foundation or a uh, trustee of a foundation. Mm-hmm. The meeting began in my office at 9 a.m., and I remember that I had a 3 o'clock meeting somewhere else that I had to cancel. So we met for about from about 9 a.m. to probably 
three or three thirty in the afternoon. And the wow. and the we agreed early on the level of commitment. In fact, the commitment probably was made before this meeting. It was a $1 million commitment to a project in Israel. The six hours were spent on deciding the size of the plaque, the size of the of the uh, name on the outside of the building. Now, I knew nothing and know nothing about opticals and spacing and that kind of stuff. I was right. with the president of the institution who happened to be a PhD in some field related to engineering and eyesight and I'm not sure what. He left after an hour and a half and I <laughs> sat for the whole day and pretended and participated and attempted to understand what this person wanted. At the end of the day, I made the person feel really good. The million dollars committed. Several months later, we went to Israel and had a dedication, and everything went well. But it was a very difficult six hours for me. Today, I think at my age, I probably would have fallen. I would probably fall asleep. But in those <laughs> days, I was awake and feigned an interest in what it was that the person was speaking about, although I understood very little. Great. So let me ask you. I think this is this is actually a very important question. And I, I think it's maybe the hardest part of being a fundraiser. First of all, I, I'm, I'm going to make an assumption here that it's harder to get the meeting than it is to close it once you have the meeting. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. Okay, so and today and today that's much more difficult than it was at one time. Again, I want to go back quickly to the uh, UJA days. Everybody knew that they were going to be making their annual gift. The op- the question was when do we sit down and how much do we ask them for? It was almost it was almost automatic and universal that we could get a an appointment. Today that's not necessarily the case. Right. We're in a different world today with so many people and so many ways to, to, to contact people and so many different needs around the world. So how do you get you how do you from a from a cold call, from a list, how do you get through? How do you get that appointment? I've been very confident in everything I've told you to date. I'm going to yeah. tell you, since I believe in integrity and honesty, that I am not an expert uh, at getting appointments. I have no uh, better uh, advantage getting appointments than other people. The only uh, so there's no real secret sauce. Then. Well, the only the only uh, because I have not I have not the um, I would say I have not the uh, ability to uh, call back and call back and call back with a, with tremendous tenacity. I've uh, really developed two ways of trying to get appointments. One is to do a lot of networking. That is to find someone who's closer to me than the prospect who can help me put together and find the solicitation. And I'll spend a large amount of time trying to do that. The mm-hmm. other is to gain the confidence of somebody inside. It could be the secretary. It could be the, uh, it could be somebody in the office. Again, in the same, in the same uh, genre, the cold call trying to get an appointment is a skill that I haven't yet mastered. There are many people who do it and many people, and of course, many people do it better than I. What I do is, uh, I think the word is network so that I can find a key and a way in that will allow me to have that conversation with the person and hopefully close their gift. Excellent. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say soliciting. I mean, that that seems to be the hardest part is how do you get through the noise? And so you're saying by uh, networking, by using your network, getting someone else to make the intro, 
It's funny in the for-profit world, that's how it's done as well. Where you know, if you just try to go to an angel investor or a VC without them knowing you, uh, chances are very slim. But if you know somebody that knows them, that'll make the intro. It's a lot easier to get the uh, meeting get re- and uh, get noticed. Yes, I don't have a uh, a high level of uh, negativity. That is to say, I I I feel I can I can destroy my day by getting a couple turndowns. So I want to work as uh, diligently as I can, uh, as smart as I can, as long as I can, and finding the right way into a situation where I can have some positive results. Fundraising for me is never about how many people you get in touch with. It's really about quality solicitations and quality meetings and quality connections that can lead us to a, a very high level of, uh, of success. So it's not about getting 10 appointments. It's about getting two of the right appointments. And while that may take some time, I uh, feel that both on an emotional, psychological level and on a practical level, it's the best way for me to proceed at moving a process ahead. Excellent. Excellent. Um, let's talk a little bit about the economics of fundraising, both back when you worked for the Federation and today. How do fundraisers get paid or you know i know that there some take commission some don't take any commission what do you feel how does it work and and what are your feelings about well i'm a very uh you know i'm a professional and uh i've never taken a commission i never will take a commission i work uh as uh, lawyers work as accountants work i sign on to a project i get a uh, fee for the project paid out on a monthly basis Uh, oftentimes it's adjusted based on uh circumstances. And um, that is the way uh, we fundraise. Occasionally, there's a bonus connected to it. But by and large, I'm driven by uh, the um, I'm driven by the size of the campaign and the skill sets and the amount of hours. It's not a precise science, but it's never based on commission. I'm so loath to commission because commission for it has a, a bunch of negativities attached to it, uh, including the fact that uh, we are not mishalachim, we are professionals, we're not, uh, we're not people knocking at doors. And uh, I don't want that, I don't want the solicitation, the prospect, to feel that he is giving some portion of the money I'm asking for to him. I'm not. Uh, I may have a more sustainable contract. I may be more successful with what I'm doing, but uh, there is no direct connection between that $10,000, $50,000 or $100,000 ask and my compensation. And I think that's very important. Again, back to integrity, back to honesty, and back to feeling that I'm doing this as a professional. I'm not doing this for personal gain. It is uh, psychologically, emotionally very important not to get caught up in what is the percentage that I'm going to get from this solicitation? And uh, frankly, it also helps close a gift because from time to time, a donor will ask that question. Not not frequently, but from time to time and is always oppressed with the answer that uh, your particular gift has no, uh, your particular gift will go to the organization and doesn't have, and, I, and, and, and the success of that gift does not go through me. There's nothing coming out of that gift for me. Interesting. I mean, that's, uh, you know, you would think that since how hard fundraising is, that having some sort, even if it's a small commission of it, just to motivate you to keep going, to moving, to ask for the larger gift, knowing that there would be some uh, 
some additional financial benefits, you would think that would be a driving force. You're saying most professionals don't take anything above the agreed upon. Well, I, I'm not sure about most professionals, but I know in my, uh, I know I don't, and the, the people I advise and I work with don't. Now, there, your point is, uh, your point is important. There has to be there. There incentivizing a professional is a good thing. And the way I look at it is really twofold. Number one, I'm driven and motivated by the desire to do a good job and reach the goal. Now, having reached the goal, we oftentimes will build in a bonus. But again, it's not based on a particular solicitation. It's based on the fact that this campaign needed to raise $2 million and raised $2.1 million. And therefore, there's some performance bonus attached to my compensation. Excellent. Excellent. And what about the, how do people overlook or, or how often does it come up in conversation? Because I know there's something else that you hear a lot of how much money that's fundraising goes to overhead. Yeah, that comes and up that, all the, that comes up all the time. Uh, right. I I would, and I think I, there's laws about it as well. Said, I'm sorry, I didn't hear the question. And I think there's laws about it, at least in uh, America. Well, uh, I, about I attempt well. to work for organizations that uh, maximize the return on program and minimize the uh, administrative expenses. Now that could be, it could be a long conversation about how do you determine that. But by and large, my rule of thumb is that for a startup organization, we could sometimes spend or or objectify a campaign that might generate 70% program and 30% administration. When an organization becomes more mature, I like to go down to under 20%. So it's also something I work on. And besides fundraising, I'm a community organization professional and a not-for-profit advisor. And I help organizations when they create their 990s work very hard toward an 80-20 split where the vast majority of the money is used for programming. So 80-20 is acceptable when it comes to uh, foundations and large donors? Yes, I would say 80-20 is acceptable. Again, I will explain if someone asks me that question that startups must spend more money than that to start up. Uh, 30% is acceptable, probably 40 to 45% is not acceptable, but very often the range, it may be that kind of range in the first year or two that, are, that a startup not-for-profit goes into business. So I, I work with these numbers, and frankly, I look at them before I, and I discuss them frequently before I take an organization. I want to feel that the organization uh, warrants the respect that I'm going to give it, and uh, therefore I'm going to do my due diligence at looking at the organization to determine uh, what is the organization's best practices. Excellent, excellent. Okay, uh, someone... A young guy, young girl wants to go out now and become a professional fundraiser, right? They're, they they finish seminar, they finish yeshiva, or they finish college, and they want to do, go out. They feel they have the skills, they're very personable. What is the path they need to take in order to get involved in, in this industry? I first want to answer that by saying that I always encourage people to go into this field. I don't necessarily do that anymore because uh, the rate of success is not necessarily high. And the skill sets are um, quite, one must be quite skillful and quite lucky 
siyata dishmaya to be successful. Having said that, I think that what individuals need is a what an individual needs is a mentor and a good partnership with a volunteer or lay leader to proceed forward. For example, I'm now working, as I said earlier, on a synagogue, on a yeshiva, which is in a synagogue, in a shul in Teaneck, New Jersey. And my question was to the person who reached out to me, the Rosh Yeshiva, what is your connection and relationship with the president of the organization? Having heard that there was a good partnership, I said, okay, I feel like I can work with you. But if the situation is one of of combativeness uh, or um, difficulty, going into that environment uh, can be counterproductive for me. So I think that there are a couple elements. Does the person have tenacity? Is the person articulate? Uh, is the person egotistical? If the person is too egotistical, then he's not going to be a good fundraiser. Because as I always say in my seminars, the most important person in the solicitation is the prospect. It's not the asker. It's not the rabbi. It's not the presenter. It's the prospect. The prospect has to feel good. So if you have those kinds of skills, and I speak very frankly and openly to potential professionals or people who started off in a field but need to climb to the next step, they need a mentor. They need a certain set of skill sets that are uh, really personality traits. They need to be persistent, and they need to be articulate. And they have then the ability and possibility to be successful. And I would add to that, they need to have passion. They need to believe strongly in what they're doing and the future of the Jewish people and making the world a better place and however they're going to define passion. But they can't be, it can't be just a job. Uh, They will not be successful. Excellent. Absolutely excellent. This interview so far has been beyond what I could have imagined. Your experience is showing through. It's absolutely excellent. I have a couple more questions, then we're going to just uh, we're gonna close it off. But in our what we call our lightning round, just, just uh, two quick questions. One, what was the best advice that you ever received? The best advice that I ever received was to be yourself, to perfect yourself, to understand yourself, and to Use your talents, use your skills in the solicitation process. Not to fake it, but be yourself. I don't remember who gave me that advice, but it kind of evolved. And I always felt that what I had to present, the greatest tool I had was me. Fantastic. That's great advice. And uh, just uh, lastly, what book would you recommend to our listeners uh, and why? Well, I actually have... uh, three thoughts in mind. Number one, the book I would recommend is the book I have yet to write, but it is, <laughs> but it is in, my, uh, in my bucket list. So I'm going to recommend the book that no one has read yet that I haven't written. There are two other books that I recommend. There is a consultant, a, a wonderful consultant, not Jewish, named Gerald Panis, who uh, has written a number of books, two of which I would suggest are his book called Asking and the other one is called Mega Gifts. There's some wonderful principles in there that uh, are basically consistent with the uh, with my experiences and with the principles that I put forth. The other is a Jewish book called Stuck of Treasuries by uh, my former rabbi, Rabbi Avram Chaim Foyer, who now lives in Israel, uh, who uh, 
put out this book uh, a number of years ago before Hanukkah. And I think that while there are a lot of great stories in the book, and there's a, a lot of art scroll type uh, interchange, one can read the book from a professional point of view and recognize that uh, Rabbi Foyer is creating a sort of behavior modification concept about fundraising that is incredibly uh, valuable. He says that people are born essentially selfish, and the fundraising process, he's talking about the donations, not the not the professional piece of this, but I've uh, carried it to the next step. He said the fundraising process turns a person from a selfish to a selfless, from a ego-driven person to a community-driven person. And I think it's a very excellent book that I would recommend. I think it is called Stuck of Treasuries by Rabbi Avram Chaim Foyer. And uh, anybody who buys it, I would suggest they call up Rabbi Foyer and say that I'm promoting his book. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, Rabbi Shimon, this has been absolutely fantastic. I mean, I could talk to you for hours. You have so much history, so much knowledge, uh, so much to give. And I appreciate you sharing of your time with us and for sharing your stories and for sharing your advice. This has been absolutely fantastic. So thank you for joining the show. But thank you very much. You have a wonderful day. And I appreciate the opportunity to share my stories. And I hope in some way it will uh, help others delve into this area, create some skill sets that they haven't had before and be motivated to be successful. Hatzlacha Rabbi, I appreciate it very much and I look forward to speaking to you again. Amen. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the From Entrepreneur Podcast with Nahum Kligman. We hope you learned something valuable and will share this with your friends. For show notes, archives of previous episodes and more information to help you start and grow your business, please visit our website, www.fromentrepreneur.com. Listen, learn, be Masliach.